Greetings and welcome to The Pod, the podcast in which we explore the notion that there is more to ocean swimming than just swimming in the ocean. My name is Mark West and in each episode I will chat to an expert in an aspect of ocean swimming that you might not have thought about before. And to kick things off in our first episode, let's talk about marine isopods, or rather, flesh-eating sea lice. has been a documented case where they have eaten the top half of a human. So a Japanese fisherman fell in off his boat and he was quite a distance out from shore. And when they found him the next morning, he'd been skeletonised from the waist up. I spoke with Dr Murray Thompson from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney about his research into a species of isopod called Cyrillana harfordi a small crustacean that lives on the coast and in rivers. You may have seen the recent news about the swimmer who emerged from a dip at a Melbourne beach with his legs covered in blood seeping from thousands of tiny wounds. Murray thinks that Cyrillana Harfordi may have been to blame, and as you have just heard, you don't have long if they come at you. I started by asking Murray about one of his papers that described how these creatures can gather together in big groups and take down sharks. Yes, so only very recently, Mark, we've discovered that they are social creatures. Um, And uh, one of my PhD PhD students who's who's just recently graduated, she started off by demonstrating that they are social and that they actively seek each other's company. And so, yes, that that put a whole new spin on things on now that they can actually form a community. Um, And how cooperative that community is, is unknown at present. So we don't know, for example, when you see lions hunting their prey, they are quite definitely communicating and working in synergy. Dolphins do the same. We have no idea whether the Cyrillanids are doing this or whether it's simply that they have a common purpose. <laughs> they like to get together in groups and then they, whenever an animal comes past, um, they have a common purpose in attacking that animal. And so, how do you how do you say the proper name? I was I was getting the pronunciation wrong, so I should leave so it to the So it's Cyrillana. Yep, Cyrillana, and they were they were um, found by Mr. Harford. Um, I think uh, probably in the 1800s, and so they they got uh, the name was Latinized to Harfordi. Cyrillana Harfordi is their name. And they're marine isopods, which means they're crustaceans. So are they basically really small prawns? So they're a little bit different from the prawn because the prawn is, a, is a, in, a, uh, in a group called decapods, meaning that they've got uh, 10 legs. Isopods, when they're adults, they have 14 legs, um, that walking legs that they use. So they're in, you know, they're related, of course, being crustaceans, but they're, they're in a different, uh, a different um, sort of uh, division of animals. They've evolved quite differently. From time, and so a prawn, where a prawn is actually flattened from the sideways, um, an isopod is flattened from the top and bottom. And are they this this concept that they can band together in this sort of gregarious social behaviour and 
and take down a fish mm-hmm. or even something as big as a shark is quite a scary concept. Yeah. Are we swimming through them in Bondi? Is this going to happen <laughs> to swimmers? You definitely could be. And the, the, what is unknown is how severely they could attack fishes. Now, there has been, I don't know if I mentioned it, but there has been a documented uh, case where they have eaten the top half of a human. So a Japanese fisherman uh, fell in off his boat and he was quite a distance out from shore. And when they found him the next morning, he'd been skeletonized from the waist up by Cyril and a half 40. They were crawling still all over him. And that was a huge swarm. And he didn't, uh, whether he was, whether he died before he hit the water or not is unknown. Um, and whether he just simply couldn't swim to the shore fast enough, uh, because as soon as he, if, if someone got out the water, usually these things will drop off pretty quickly. Wow, that's terrifying. So <laughs> it is terrifying. And so there have been the other thing that that that's makes us concerned is that there also has been documented examples where um, divers have been bitten on their face by these things. And sometimes in America there has been, you know, there's some places, there's some beaches where um, what they call sea lice, which could be uh, isopods and also amphipods. Amphipods are a little bit more like a prawn. They're flattened side to side as well. Um, But there's times when what they collectively call sea lice do swarm and swimmers do get bitten so that they they know to stay out of the water for a couple of days. Is that... Oh, I think that's what's theorised happened in Melbourne recently at, at Brighton Beach. There was some rather graphic footage of somebody that emerged out of the water with bloodied legs. And that... That's right. That's right. So that was that was a uh, young guy, and he he I think he was his feet were in the water, and it was at night time, and um, whether they were whether they were amphipods bit him or Cyrilanaha 40 that bit him is not known. Um, I'm speculating that it's more likely to be Cyrilanaha 40 because they have prior form. They're known to to bite uh, um, humans. And also when we've done some studies on the Cyrilana mouthparts and they have a slicing guillotine style mouthpart in there called the maxilla and um, sorry called the mandibles and uh, they slice we've we've seen how they use those in in using microscopy and it slices back and forward repeatedly and so it's quite conceivable that he had Cyrilana half 40 on his legs they were slicing repeatedly which put all of those cut little cuts in his leg and he was very very lucky that he got out in time before the skin was completely destroyed. Wow. And then or before they eventually, I guess they tunnel in and find an artery and then you're in big trouble. Yes. Whether, again, too, whether they would tunnel in. So they use, when they get into sharks and they've been, there's actually papers with um, showing a shark heart cut open and they've got into the heart. So there's pictures of a dissected shark heart that have been published in scientific journals and showing these serolanid isopods in there. So they've got into the artery and then gone up into the heart. Now, usually they actually get in through either the shark's uh, gills 
or through the anus. And in, in the case of the young guy down in Melbourne, he only had his feet in the water, so he wasn't, he wasn't uh, in that danger. But the, yeah, the, the important thing there is that too, yes, obviously they start with the skin. Once the skin's gone, they'll start moving into the muscle. Um, to get into the body cavity, they usually go through those routes. But yeah, it is, it is quite terrifying. And so there's, I guess there's now some suggestion they're not just going after dead fish that are, that are on the bottom or dead sharks. They, they might actually go after live creatures like humans. It's, it's almost certain now. So they, yes, they were first when Sirilana harfordia and other related isopods were first discovered. They were mainly thought of as scavengers as you say exactly, Mark, that they, they were thought of as the detritus eaters. You know, when something died, it, it floats to the bottom and they crawl out of the, the sand and start eating it. And certainly we, we've seen that. So we've actually done, uh, in the past, we've studied the bigger cousin of Cyrilana Harfordi called Bathynomus pelor, which is around about, oh, it's probably about um, 12 10 to 12 centimetres long so it's a substantially big creature and we used to study it from remotely operated vehicles from oil rigs off the, off the west coast Western Australia about 500 metres deep water and what we would do is throw down or take down bits of bacon and things like that and you see them come out of the sand and attack the food. However now there's been lots of evidence that um, for example when people have caught fish in, sh uh, fish in nets that they get attacked by Cyrilana and other, other isopods. So yes people are now starting to think that they will attack living creatures not just dead. And they hang out not just in the, the deep water the 500 meters off the, co off the west coast but also in the shallows as well. Yes, yeah, so there's different species of the mark and the ones that they tend to be different species will have different areas that they like to colonise. So, for example, Bathynomus tends to like the deeper water and things in the deeper water, for a reason we can't really um, explain, tend to grow bigger. And I might have mentioned to you that in New Mexico, the Bathynomus species, there's a Bathynomus species called Gigantus, and it's called Gigantus because it is it weighs slightly more than the, I think I mentioned to you the our smallest dog, which is the Chihuahua. So they get up to a couple of kilograms, um, and they they're very big and fearsome creatures. Yes, so um, Cyrilana harfordi tends to grow up to about two centimeters top top length and they tend to swim in the shallows and they sometimes um, in the tidal region they'll hide underneath a rock when the tide goes out and then when the tide comes in they come out from under the rock and they swim around and they do, we now think that they hunt things like um, marine worms and yes uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the staff at the Sydney Institute of Marine Sciences have told me that they've seen fish when they've caught fish. There's been cyrillanid isopods attached to the fish, especially around the gills and the tail. And so there's very little doubt that this species now, yes, goes after living fish as well. It's a very interesting concept. Do, do, do you know if they uh, if they're opportunistic and just attack things that happen to swim through them, or do they somehow kind of display some uh, social characteristics that allow them to go and hunt together? Can they? How do they? How would they detect a, a moving fish, say, to to go and get it? Are they opportunistic, or do they hunt? Yes. Well, both the opportunistic. I think you know. I, I can. F 
when we have them in tanks in the laboratory and we also have them close to the we have them in flow through tanks close to the the harbor um they will eat practically anything that you give them so they are definitely opportunistic when they're hungry they will eat absolutely anything and, and especially eating bacon you know, very rare that we would think that in natural circumstances they'd ever encounter a pig so yes they eat anything is the, the first answer to your question the second answer is that we do know that they swarm and the reason that we know this is that in certain areas of the world they are indulging in fish culture where they actually grow fish up in shallow water uh, out in a bay or in an estuary in nets and what they're doing then is they're feeding these fish the fish are in the nets and when the, it's time to harvest the fish and use them as food they simply go to the net and take take the fish out now one of the biggest obstacles to doing this is that these kind of marine isopods will often attack them and it will all happen you know they might be growing up there for months with no problem and then all of a sudden the cerulanid isopods will attack and their their batch is wiped out and what people think is that well what they know is that they attack in swarms so they see the cerulanid isopods in a huge swarm going and feeding on the fish and what they think triggers that swarm is that the fish get bitten um, by these very small tiny little crustaceans called ostracods they're only about a millimeter in uh, in length but these tiny little uh, crustaceans by biting the fish have released all of the the food odors and that sends the swarm into a frenzy and they go and attack they are definitely attacking in a swarm whether they're communicating with each other is what we don't know. We do know that they like each other's company and so that helps form the swarm. And so that's our extent at the moment of understanding about their sociality. It's a fascinating idea. So much like a shark picking mm. up the scent of blood. It's exactly like that. Oh, and they start off their life um, in a, well, I don't know how to say it, terrifying way in that as, as babies, they tunnel through their mother's stomachs to get food <laughs> that's that's like the, they certainly do whether they tunnel through i don't that the evidence at the moment we, we still don't know um but it's not suggesting that they tunnel through which means that they go right into a stomach but they are what they are at the moment is they are held this particular species is different in that it holds the babies within the mother's um uh, thorax cavity so most of them hold the babies outside the mother's body in a marsupial pouch. That's how most isopods work. For example, the little slaters that you see in your garden, when they have babies, they're completely outside mother's body held in a marsupial pouch. The, what it looks like in this species is that the mother forms the pouch, as did her ancestors, but this species has evolved the capability then of dissolving the ventral, the body wall, so in, in other words, her stomach, and that allows the babies then to go into her entire body cavity where they can move around in there. We can actually look in. The animal's amazing because its body wall then is formed by plates that grow out from mum's leg, and that holds everything in including her intestines and stomach and also the babies, but they're see-through. So you can simply look into this animal. It's like looking through a glass window and you can see the, the, uh, the babies inside mother's, in, inside mother's body. Now, what we do know is that those babies will then chew holes in 
mum's intestine and suck the contents out of that. <laughs> wow. So to add to the terrifying nature yep. of this creature, yeah, it, 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 uh, it, it dissolves the mother's, uh, the outside of the mother's stomach and then gets into the intestines. Oh, it certainly bites. So what it actually, whether the babies are actually releasing something that dissolves mum's body wall, so, you know, the analogy would be like the skin on the, on the tummy and the chest, um, whether the babies are actually dissolving it or whether there's a programmed uh, physiological process within the mother herself okay, that yes. is causing this tissue to, to go away. But we, the reason that I know that they bite holes in mum's intestine is that I'd been feeding a batch of mothers and babies um, simply white fish so that when you looked at the animal, it just had the white fish going through its intestine. And then I went up and got them some salmon, which was bright pinky red. And immediately you could see the salmon inside the baby's intestine while it was still inside mother's body. Now, there's only one way that that can happen, and that's that's that it's biting holes. Yeah, there's no other way. They can't get out to eat the salmon. So it had to be, had to be that. So I guess that's a that's a nice segue into how do you, how do you see all this? It's with um, electron microscopes. Yeah. So what we can do, for example, if we it, it depends on the level that we want to go to. So if we're just looking at the uh, you know looking at the. Uh, what they're actually called embryos to start with, and then instead of calling them a fetus, they, we call, they're called mancas. So it's M-A-N-C-A is the very, very sort of immature baby while it's still within the mother's body, and we call that a manca, and that's the equivalent of fetus. And if you want to see the mancas within the mother's body, you can simply just, you, you could actually use just a magnifying glass. You could see them. You can almost see them with your naked eye. They're about um, two millimetres long to three millimetres long at that stage. And then if you want to see, um, you know, detail, for example, you wanted to look at the developing embryo and see the developing antenna and legs at a very early stage, um, then you would use an electron microscope to see that. That's right. The, it's slightly big enough you can see by... With, with the naked eye, can you see them in the water yeah. if they're swimming around? If you're down at the beach, can you can, can you spot them if you're lucky? Very hard. It's very hard. This species, they've evolved. Uh, what they've evolved is a mechanism where they have what's called melanophores, and a melanophore is like melanin in your skin, so it's a pigment. And what they do is these. Mel- Melanophores, which are our small little cells with the melanin, form these little sort of mottled patches all the way back. So they're speckled. And this speckling makes them very hard to see against rocks and sand. It's kind of camouflaging because it almost gives the impression of sand. And so when they're in the water, they are almost impossible to see. And we know this from, uh, we'll often do behavioral experiments on these animals and then we'll take them back and just release them back into the water. And you see them for a a split second as you put them back into the water and then they just vanish. Oh, that's 
just fascinating. That's that's amazing. And so mm. th- these are roughly a centimeter, two centimeters when they're grown up. But you mentioned uh, you mentioned that there were also micro versions, uh, different species, but even smaller uh, isopods as well. Yes. Yep. So isopods can be anywhere between around about two millimeters. The adults, they're the really small ones, about two millimetres. The mancas, when they're born, they're around about three to four millimetres long of this particular species and up to, as I say, the, um, the Bathonomus gigantus, which is around about 30, 30 to 35 centimetres long. Wow. That, I mean, that'd be... An amazing change. Have we ever seen them swarm? Because that would be something to see. Whether the bathonomus do or not, uh, whether they swarm, I certainly have. When they um, when they come out of the the sand to attack fish, and if you um, Mark, I'll try. There's a great video on YouTube. I think it's in David Attenborough's series when there's some food on the bottom of the seafloor and you see the eels and bathynomous isopods coming out and crabs attacking this this animal and just completely devouring it and what's interesting is that the bathynomous animals um, haven't yet been seen in what you'd call a swarm i've seen them for example maybe around about 20 um, 20 of them uh, together, um, but quite often you'll see them in groups of maybe three or four. So bathynomus have not been seen in the huge swarms that we see these uh, beachside species like Cirillana harfordi forming. So we don't know if they do that. Evidence so far suggests that they hang together in much smaller groups. What's really interesting, though, we've got some video footage of two of them definitely honing in on a piece of bacon. And their interaction is kind of like two puppy dogs. They're not aggressive towards each other. They're highly aggressive towards the food, and they attack the food, but they're not really aggressive in pushing the other one out the way. And this is unlike, for example, a pack of lions will often snarl at each other and bite each other when they're, they're feeding together. And so far, we don't see this behaviour in bathynomus. They're quite kind to each other. And there's a big proviso, though. They're kind to each other and they're social as long as one of them is not injured. As soon as one is injured, they turn into cannibals and attack <laughs> each other. Of course they do. Okay. <laughs> and even the babies, I've seen a swarm of babies attacking uh, an adult because it had become injured and ate approximately half its face and mouth parts off. Wow, so this is interesting implications of, for how they evolved. I guess all these behaviours evolved for a reason. They must... Um, yes. Uh, yeah, there's, some, there's obviously some benefit in that... In that um, Altruism, I guess. Well, I guess it's, uh, it's not exactly altruism, but yeah, it's not so attacking the altru- each other. the switching over of exactly. So there is that. Well, they do. They like being together. We know this for sure. They like. We we've set up experiments where we give them two different shelters that they can choose, and the group together will choose one of those shelters at random, and congregate it because they like being with each other. So there's there's no doubt now that 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 they're social and they like each other's company and of course the benefits for that is being 
uh, more efficient hunters, whether they're cooperating or not. They're still more efficient if they all stick together in a group. They're intimidating towards predators. And this, of course, has been given them benefits throughout evolution. It's been selected. When one of them is injured, it's very unlikely that that, that individual would survive. And so it's probably for the benefit of the group then that they turn on it and more effectively use the nutrients within that animal. So if, for example, that they, they just left it and buried their dead as humans do, that's a very nice and social thing to do. But in evolutionary terms, it's not very efficient. And so they've taken the more efficient way. And, and in, in, if we look at evolution from the, the start of life on Earth, these creatures, are, they're somewhere along the evolutionary line. If I understand right, they represent... Um, you know, 200 at, million years. They've, they've been here for about 200 million years, maybe 250 million years. And so they've evolved from the, uh, the, the um, crustacean ancestor, which, which did look sort of like a, a big prawn kind of you know it did look quite similar to that and they've evolved they've evolved that that flattened body which allowed that which probably allowed them to swim better so the flattened body makes them streamlined and towards their tail you'll see a, lo a lot of uh, series of double fins in place and they flap those they've got two uh, uses those fins have actually gills in them so when they flap them they're moving the water over the gills and getting the oxygen from that but it also makes them highly efficient swimmers so while they can crawl along the floor there's some lovely footage of them swimming um, beautifully through the water so they can get up off the floor and they can swim then in of course three dimensions rather than just staying in that two dimensions down on the the uh, the benthos the, the floor of the sea that's fascinating, um, like convergent evolution, I guess. You've got to go a long way back to find a common ancestor with fish, I imagine. Oh, so fish would have, you know, so that, that's the, the difference. And what is really fascinating, that's going right back to the difference between vertebrates and invertebrates. And the, the fascinating thing there is, of course, ver, uh, vertebrates, as, as we are, have a central nervous system running along our back and our digestive system running along our front. And crustaceans and invertebrates have flipped that body pattern completely around and they have their central nervous system running along their tummy and their digestive system runs along their back and in fact the the brain of crustaceans and insects has to have a hole through it because their digestive system goes right through the middle of their brain <laughs> in this flip so we think that we've evolved from from a creature you know there's the start of a creature that's that's had the body pattern where they've had a head and a body and a tail but somewhere along the line that's been flipped on its back and the one that got flipped on its back has evolved the skeleton mainly on the outside and of course we've develop the skeleton mainly on the inside. Now, I always say mainly because I ask, ask my students, are we really um, endoskeletons? What about your skull? Is that mainly on the inside of your body or mainly on the outside? And they think about it and go, it's actually mainly on the outside. So we, we're actually a combination. That's... Uh, Endo and exoskeleton. Yeah, I'd never, I'd never thought of that before. That's fascinating. And Most people have never thought about no. that before, but <laughs> it's, it's true when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. And so did these creatures um, or their ancestors a long time ago emerge from the sea? Or is this a, and, and then become land animals? Or is this a little offshoot from that, from that line? Yes. Yes. So the crustaceans, or the isopods, I should say, are one, and, and other crustaceans are one of the few animals that has 
evolved in the sea. We think it evolved um, fairly close to the shore in the, in the more shallow sea. Some have gone into the deep sea. Uh, others have gone to pretty much every area of the world. At the top of the highest mountains, you'll find isopods, crustacean isopods. Um, and you'll also find them. they've moved into freshwater and they've also moved out onto land. And the species that we work on, Cyrillana half-40, we think is an evolutionary transition species because it shows in its behaviour it's quite willing to come out of the water and can stay out for days as long as it's close to water. Um, and it also has an ability to move into less saline waters. It can withstand half-strength um, seawater quite easily and that means that it can swim up the river and they have been found as far up the Parramatta River as Greenwich and so yes we think this is a transition we, we're seeing this uh, this species evolve and it's it's at a stage and it's an evolution where it, it can both come out of the water and go into fresh water and there's even isopods that live in deserts because they've thickened the cuticle on their skin um, the social behavior of course when they huddle together if you look at the isopod wood lice in your backyard you quite often see them huddling together and what this does is it decreases the surface area of their body and decreases then the evaporation so there's been there's been lots of of uh, evolutionary advantages for them huddling together like this, both in the sea and when they come out onto land. And we think that we now think uh, that this huddling and social behaviour evolved prior to them coming out of the water, but it gave them an evolutionary advantage when they did decide to come out of the water. Okay, and is it the fact that they have exoskeletons that stop them from getting too big? You don't see um, isopods the size of humans what, what, or dogs. That's right. So what, it, well, to a certain extent, if you have a look at the, um, the land crabs, that if you do a quick Google search, you'll see them. The coconut crabs, they are incredibly huge. They're about, the, there's a famous picture of one, sitting on the side of a garbage bin and it is, it, it's pretty much the same size as the oh, garbage bin. I have and there's seen an, these, yeah. another great one, there's another great one where the crab is actually on the side of the house and it is enormous. So while the exoskeleton does limit to a certain extent the amount of oxygen that can get through the tissues, see we have a very, we have a very efficient system with the lungs of course gets that oxygen into the tissues and vertebrates can grow to the size of elephants and, and you know back in time they grew as big as the dinosaurs did. We don't have any evidence that, that, were, that there were invertebrates that big and so there seems to be some sort of level, it, it's more difficult for them to get large, however they can as shown by the, the coconut crabs, they can reach quite a decent size. What's next in your, in your line of research with the uh, Cyrillani? Yes, so we do want to have a look more at the development of the babies. Um, we want to look at, you know, how, they, how the mother is able to... We know that the mother survives this process. 
So we want to find out how that tissue repairs itself. We want to find out the mechanism of how this animal amazingly just destroys its, its body wall. That, that to me is just so unusual and so mind-boggling to find out how it does that. We want to know more about the sociality of them, whether they do cooperate, whether they can actually communicate with each other and whether they do um, cooperate in terms of searching for food. Um, and what we want to do is learn a lot more about how they've evolved these abilities to move into fresh water and out onto land so we can understand uh, how, how this animal has evolved to take up these different um, parts of the world. And, and lastly, and, and maybe more importantly, there is real kind of opportunity here to understand how live birth evolved on this planet. Live birth has evolved in snakes and lizards about a hundred times, but in mammals it's only evolved once. And so we really want to look at, at how animals have gone from being egg layers to, to be able to have live birth. And what we think we can see in this animal, the pregnant animal, is the start, the rudimentary start in evolutionary terms of a placenta. So to understand how a placenta has evolved in vertebrates and humans, um, we do want to have a look at this animal and see if there is tissue here that is actually supplying nutrition to the, to the um, babies and start to understand how that placenta actually linked into the young of animals like vertebrates in a physical connection, you know, forming an umbilical cord. That's fascinating. And so these are the, all of the, the things on the horizon for us, yep. Oh, I, I look forward to hearing more about that. That's absolutely fascinating. And I guess or one, mm -hmm. last, one last question. Uh, we should bring it back to sure. where we started. Uh, mm -hmm. We shouldn't feel too fearful going for a swim in the ocean, should we? No. So if my suggestion would be that you wouldn't want to swim anywhere where you thought these creatures might be in a situation where you couldn't get out of the water quickly. So, for example, if you were in a, in an, um, in a boat uh, offshore, you wouldn't swim more than maybe five or six metres away from that boat um, so that if you, did get, if you did get attacked, you could easily swim back to the boat, get out of the water. Most of the isopods would simply drop, drop off or you could just brush them off. Um, but you wouldn't want to go further than that. I have been bitten myself and I've had students who, who've been bitten and one bite will draw the, the, the tiniest little cut and, and you'll see the tiniest droplet you could ever imagine of blood on the hand. They find it difficult to bite through the skin on the palms of your hand and certainly on the tips of your finger, but on the back of the hand they have no problem and they'll slice through that. Now one little cut is hardly anything. You, you'd hardly notice it. But if you were covered with these things and they were biting you repeatedly, just slicing through that tissue, I don't think you'd have much more than 10 minutes oh. to get back to get them off. I think once you, I think, again, too, I'm only guessing, but around, around about 10 minutes, they could cause so much damage to you that your, you, your skin wouldn't stop bleeding. And in fact, I think it was Sam, the young guy who got bitten on the legs, the big problem they had with him was stopping the bleeding. And that was just on his feet. Imagine if that was all over the body, how, how much of a different situation that would be. And then imagine too that you're in the water and that your skin now is completely open, your blood is flowing out of every part of your skin, you imagine how long you'd last. So that would be my, 
my recommendation. The, the attacks in Australia so far have been incredibly um, uh, far apart. They have occurred. Um, and there's the possibility that they could occur. And I wouldn't say that people need to get too scared about this at the moment. Um, but what I would say is that the populations of this animal need to be very carefully monitored. And if they do get too large, that that danger of swimmers getting attacked becomes more probable. And it is a situation that I think would would need, for example, trapping a lot of them and reducing their population if it got to that stage. Are they likely to thrive in warming oceans or polluted oceans? You know, into the future, some creatures are going to do better yeah. and some are going to do worse. What are, are these guys going to do better? They're going to be winners. Right. Yep. So okay. these these guys they these guys are going to be winners. I've looked at their their reproductive rates in just four degrees warmer, and they 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 go through their reproductive cycle and deliver their babies much quicker. And they also like acidic conditions. So while ocean acidity is, as you say, some animals are going to be losers, they actually show a preference for that acidic condition. So they like warm water and they like acid, more acidic water. It's not actually acidic. It's just it's actually just less uh, less basic than it normally is. Um, and uh, yes, they'll thrive in it. I presume they're not going to like plastic pollution much, but if they they sound like they eat everything, so anything that's vaguely organic is probably going to be good for them too. <laughs> Well, yeah, so whether the yeah, people are still, the jury's still out on whether microplastics and the ingestion of those by, by um, invertebrates is going to do them any harm. We don't, we just don't know. Um, certainly the ingestion of macroplastics by vertebrates causes them a lot of harm and can kill them. But yes, we don't, it, that's another big research question. Whether the tiny fragments of plastic that are accumulating in the ocean, um, every time you wash your fleecy jumper, Little, little tiny shreds of, of the plastic fibre goes into the ocean. Of course, it doesn't break down for, for thousands of years. So these plastics are, are increasing in the ocean and, and just we have no idea what effect it'll have on the invertebrates, including Zirulana. And that'd have issues, I guess, for the whole food chain because these guys would be right at the... Well, we've, we've seen that they, they can take down sharks, but typically speaking, they can speaking, be at the bottom of the top. The bottom, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they can be at both ends. They can be both ends of that food chain and usually depending on their, their numbers. So, yes. So it, they're an important, you know, because they're at both ends of the food chain, they're an important part of that food chain. They're a very, very important part of cleaning up the detritus on the bottom of the ocean, which could otherwise breed bacteria and kill the marine oh. Organisms, so they're an incredibly important part of the ecology of the ocean. Um, and yes, we don't. While we don't want to see them swarm, we don't want to see them disappear either. That was Dr Murray Thompson from the School of Life and Environmental Sciences at the University of Sydney, talking about Cirillana harfordi, which I now think is perhaps one of the most fascinating, if terrifying, species of animal in the ocean. Visit our website at www.thepodpodcast.net. That's www.thepodpodcast.net 
For further information on Murray's work and to get in contact, don't worry, not every episode is going to be about creatures that can eat you when you're going for a swim. Thanks very much. I'm Mark West. Hopefully you'll stick around for episode two.